3: And I'm David Gura. Listen to the big take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Jim Jordan continues to embarrass the American people on our southern border. We have an incredible show today. The New Republic editor, Michael Damaski stops by for a brief history lesson on how we got to our current partisan political climate, then silent Spring Revolution author Douglas Brinkley out lines what Biden can learn from past environmental disasters. But first, we have the one, the only George Conway. Welcome back to Fast Politics, your friend of mine, George Conway. Hello. How are you?
5: I'm fine. We haven't had any insurrections lately. It's good.
4: That is good. First, I want to start by asking you about the Georgia grand jury.
5: Yes. The jury foreman. It's going to be a great Saturday night live Skip. It really is, right? Right? She's like the, uh, who that woman was in Michigan?
4: The guy in the red vest. Remember the guy in the red vest? Ken Bone, the guy in the red vest.
5: Ken Bone. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: So I want to ask you, special grand jury put together by Fannie Willis. It was already out, right? It was done. Her service was done. The deliberations were done.
5: Right. I mean, I've seen some suggestions in the press. I don't know Georgia law. I've seen some suggestions in the press that she actually... Hewed the line that was appropriate for a Georgia special grand jury, which is different from a federal grand jury, because a federal, you'd never see a federal grand jury do this. But one one way or the other, it just wasn't particularly helpful. But at the end of the day, it's just comic relief. And that's my bottom line on this.
4: Doesn't it bias like now what? Mm-hmm. Now what? the? I mean, like, so now Fannie Willis is going to make these indictment recommendations. Does this...
5: You know, you has to take the case to another grand jury and that jury has the power to indict and the defendants will make whatever noises they want to make about this, but it's not going to help. Them. And at the end of the day, this is all going to be forgotten because we'll actually see the indictments. We'll see who's been indicted and we'll start seeing more evidence.
4: When do we think that happens?
5: She told this court, the court that released the grand jury report in part, um, she told that judge that indictments were imminent. But, you know, imminent can mean, I mean, some people mean imminent means it's they're, they're going to the hospital, have a baby. Some people mean imminent means we're getting into it in a few weeks. Logically, imminent wouldn't mean six months, I think. Imminent would mean at most a couple, two or three months. Is This is my guess. And just timing-wise, she's got to get this cracking. She's got to get this cracking. It's been going on for a while. And you don't really want to have these cases brought in the middle of the silly season.
4: What is the silly season?
5: The silly season is when you know, people start wearing red hats and actually going to Iowa and things like that. And that's going to happen in the next few In sense, We're not we're almost there.
4: OK, so that's one case of Donald Trump's many legal liabilities. The second case is Jack Smith. Jack Smith, the new Bob Mueller.
5: Yeah, I think he's a younger and faster model.
4: OK, so tell me what your what your sense is there.
5: Well, I mean, we saw a report in The New York Times yesterday or the day before, I Days all blend together now.
4: Really? I have no idea what that's
5: like. You have no idea. Exactly. Jared and Ivanka have been subpoenaed to appear before that grand jury. There is only one reason why you would do that. Because they're pretty and tall. They're pretty and tall. Yes. And (laughs) lots of money. It's like (laughs) (laughs) lots
4: of Saudi money, not just money. Mr. Kushner, tell us about MBS. Is, Is he is he really a like.
5: cut above everyone else?
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, cut above.
5: Oh, I know I make these slashing jokes about the Saudis because I, hate, I despise them so much. Yes. All right. So, I, you know, the, the, the only reason why you'd want to talk to them is because they had access to Trump on January 6th. And so the, the only reason why you do that is you are, are focusing on him as the target. Mendoza isn't the target here. Meadows may even be cooperating for all we know. Um, So you know, there's really nobody else at the end of the day for those two uh, who who matters. They are a window into Trump. I mean, they kept sending Ivanka down to to the Oval to talk to him and you know try to get him off the ledge and
4: talk some sense into him. These two are the worst, right? She was supposed to be this influence, right? Where she was going to get him
5: in their defense, which I hate to say those words in their defense. He's completely uncontrollable. He's completely manipulable, but he's uncontrollable. And people don't understand the difference. They think that just because they can manipulate him, he's old, he's stupid, he's narcissistic, you can play on his ego. And that's why, you know, I mean, you read these stories, it's been for years, like oh, the last person, it's most important to be the last person to talk to him because everyone knows how to go in there and persuade him by saying, you're you so smart. No, look at this idea that I just thought of that you just thought of. I just got it from you. You know, you know all sorts of wet tricks they use to manipulate him, but they can't control him. That's the problem. Right, right, right. That's the mistake that they made.
4: Right. No, that's for sure true. As we see this going, then there's your friend and mine, Eugene Carroll's case.
5: That's the sleeper case. And and also, this is going to be great when I get to go on TV to talk about it. Full disclaimer here. And you need this disclaimer, too.
4: Oh, good. (laughs) I like any disclaimer that I am also covered
5: by. Jean Carroll met her lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, because I met Jean at a party at your apartment that's right don't i know it and i told Jean that she had to go out and get this lawyer and i then called this lawyer robbie kaplan up and said "It is. i have a case for you and the rest is uh unfortunate history for donald j trump so tell me
4: about that case though now you can comment on it as a
5: that case is going to go to trial on april 24th and and, in one way or the other And there are really two cases. There's one case that's a defamation case based upon the statements that Trump made uh, while he was president. Um, When the accusations first came out, he said, "Um, she's not my type. I've never met her. Of course, there was a photograph of him meeting her. That's a defamation case. And then New York passed this thing called the Survivor's Law. Basically, it says it revived all sexual assault, sexual harassment claims um, for a period of, I don't know how many, a year, I think, after the passage of the statute, so that people, victims whose claims were cut short by a, a shorter statute of limitations in the past, have one ch- chance to bring their case one time. And that's what she then brought the case against Trump on sexual assault, which for the statute of limitations, which would have otherwise run. So now there are two cases, and they basically turn on the same issue. Did Donald Trump rape Gene Carroll? If he did, then that he also defamed her when he said she was lying. And if he did, he's also liable um, now for sexual assault under the survivors law. So it's basically two cases in one, depending on like one event that happened in the nineteen nineties, to which there are multiple witnesses in the sense that they are, you know, she told people immediately after it happened. And then, there's gonna, apparently, there's going to be some other evidence about you know coming from people who were who were there at the time together. But um, we'll see. Do you think that case has a real shot? I mean, it's not a question of is a shot. I don't I don't know how it's triable for Donald Trump. Is he really going to testify and subject himself to cross examination? Because hasn't he been ordered to testify now? He had to testify at deposition. He doesn't have to testify in his own defense at trial. Robbie Kaplan, the plaintiff's lawyer, could call him as a hostile witness. But if he doesn't testify to what happened that day, there is no evidence on his side. But on the other hand, he can't testify because he'll get cut to shreds. Robbie will kill him. Right. And it's going to be a spectacle. His best play is to not dignify the the trial by showing up and just making the case about damages and saying we think it's just ridiculous. And then what happens? He's going to be held liable. He's going to have the red check.
4: But there's no criminal. No, there's no
5: criminal. But he's going to be the evidence is going to be very embarrassing to him. And the way he could compound the embarrassment, I think, is by testifying. I think he's going to want to basically take the take a default on liability.
4: You don't think he's going to try to testify?
5: I think he'd be insane to. But he
4: is insane. Right, right, right. So who knows?
5: On the other hand, they were successful in getting him to plead the Fifth Amendment 400 and some odd times at his civil deposition in the ERKG case. So he did, right. there are times when sense will prevail on him. And that's the sense. But his, you know, on the other hand, he opens his mouth about everything all the time.
4: Right. But what kind of civil award could this be, do you
5: think? I don't know what the damages sought or I don't know what the expert reports say or anything like that. But, you know, it basically argues that she was, first of all, she suffered an emotional injury from what happened in the department store. And then she also suffered damages from the libel. Some people wouldn't go near her and hire her for things and so on and so forth after that. Right. It's not going to bankrupt them. But, you know, the most important thing is just the testimony about what he did and the fact that there's nothing, nothing that you know, stands on his side of on that, and she's going to be a much more credible witness, I think, than he would ever be.
4: Right, right, right. And also, she doesn't have years of lying to hurt her standing.
5: Yes, Donald Trump could not withstand cross examination on any subject for more than five minutes, or one minute, frankly. He can't answer questions coherently. He can't answer questions truthfully, and. Basically, you get gibberish and insanity after a certain amount of time. I mean, we saw that in the first book that Woodward wrote, which I forget the names of which the books, but the first one right. he wrote about, you know, he wrote about the, the defense of the Mueller investigation Damn. and how Jim Dowd, his own lawyer, put him through a cross-examination to try to figure out how, you know, how to— how to prep him for being interviewed by Mueller. And basically, his conclusion is that I can't testify. He'll lie his ass off. He just will lose it.
4: I know you're not a Republican anymore, but you're really a Republican. So who do this sort of non-crazy Republicans vote for in this primary?
5: Look, I mean, if I were voting in a Republican primary, which I've been not because i will not register as a Republican for a number of years until the rot is completely gone and I don't see that happening anytime soon i vote for sununu and hogan this more sane yeah 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 and i do that because i mean look they're a little maybe they're a little more liberal than i might like in in sort of a normal world where we had sensible political discourse i'd probably be slightly to the right of them not too much i think i don't know but in this environment you know so basically the big question for me is you know does you know, call out the lie, the big lie. I even have sympathy for people who I know know the truth and have been willing to sort of hint at it. I, I can't even accept some of that. I mean, you know, it's like I, I'm not going to vote for Mitch McConnell for president. I don't think anybody would. <laughs> <Right. including> Mitch. <laughs> hey, I'm not even sure Elaine would. Yeah. But, you know, so I have this I have this now soft spot in my heart for you that developed. Right, because he's not full of shit. Well, he is full of shit.
4: I mean, he is full of shit, but not in about the election.
5: In a typical politician kind of way, okay? In a regular, in a regular machine politician kind of way, which is fine, you know, in an ordinary environment. But the thing about McConnell is, I know deep down he hates Donald Trump despises Donald Trump, detests his behavior every bit as much as you or I. Right, right, right. No, probably more. Probably more because it's made his life difficult.
4: Right. It's crushed his dream of taking away Social Security.
5: You, it gave you a podcast. It cost him a job.
4: Yeah. Oh, well, thoughts, prayers, neither. (laughs) I want to ask you one more question, which is, I mean, let's just game this out for a minute. Does DeSantis get the nomination? No. Okay.
5: It's possible and is an outside shot at it.
4: What do you think happens? Because I think you have a pretty interesting
5: idea. I have a pretty, yeah, my, here's my view. Trump will get the nomination and he will get bailed, but he will not win the general. And what I think is, I don't think right now the, the primary is set up so that Trump can be defeated. I mean, there are probably, you know, 50% of Republicans in the war who want him to go away. Many of those people would probably vote for him anyway, depending on who the other choices were. A lot of those people would. But what matters is the fact that it doesn't take 50% to win the nomination. I mean, there are these you know winner-take-all delegate rules that kick in pretty early, as I understand it. And so you know you get 27% of the vote, and that guy gets 24 You get all the delegates in a lot of these states. The way you beat Trump is one-on-one and going after him hammer and tong. I don't think it's going to be one-on-one at any point or soon enough for DeSantis to win. I don't think, and I don't think DeSantis would do what it's necessary to do, which is to go hammer and tong at Trump. And I think the NAM's is going to be everybody's going to go attack DeSantis, and Trump's going to be attacking DeSantis. Right, right, right. Everybody's going to not talk about the orange elephant that shout on the stage. You know, he's going to get a bit of a free ride, and he's going to get his 35%, and he's going to get the nomination. And he will, you know, he'll post bail, and he'll be the first actively indicted, maybe even trying a criminal case presidential candidate, a nominee of a major party in history. And he's going to foment violence because if he can't get out by getting presidential immunity by being reelected again, he'll, he's going to want to take every, everyone down with him, which is what malignant narcissists, narcissistic psychopaths do. Even if DeSantis were able to beat Trump one-on-one in a race that I just don't see happening, but if it happened and he, he, was, he, was, he, he got 60 or 70% of the vote and got the nomination or even 50 yeah, you know, he's going to end up with 20 or 30% of Republicans pissed at him. And, and Trump could even run as a third-party candidate, just to just to screw things up, just out of spite.
4: Yeah, I mean that seems likely. To Rick keeps saying that.
5: And to gin up people in case he's going to trial and he wants to basically say that I'm being persecuted and because I'm running, both parties have conspired against me. And you know he's going to do that. He'll, he'll do that before anything else. So it's going to be the biggest. It's going to be as big a, a shit show of who, as we've seen in the last 160 years of American history.
4: Is there going to be a change in George Conway's life?
5: It's possible.
4: It's possible. OK, so that I think is, uh, you know, not not nothing. George Conway, I hope you will come back. <laughs> will you come back?
5: You are a troublemaker. You are a <laughs> troublemaker. You are such a troublemaker.
4: I hope you will come back. Come on. It's
2: fun. Hi. All right. All right.
4: Doug Brinkley is the author of Silent Spring, Revolution. Welcome to Fast Politics, Doug Brinkley.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Molly. Appreciate it.
4: I'm very excited to have you. We are second generation friends because you have been on panels with my mother.
2: Absolutely, and I watched on video a panel you did with Playboy with your mom recently, which I just love talking about the second feminist revolution and just where things are at today. It was a really interesting panel you did. Oh, well, thank you. Mom and daughter swapping stories. It was great.
4: (laughs) You know, we have a dog and pony show, but you are an expert in this field about this political history of environmental disaster, for lack of a better phrase.
2: Yeah, well, you know, so I uh, grew up in a town called Perrysburg, Ohio, along the Maumee River. And I was there in 1969 when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. That's the great industrial waterway by Cleveland. And if yeah. you lit a, lit a match, it would go up and fire. And then Lake Erie was dying. The novelist Kurt Vonnegut said "The it's dying of human excrement and Clorox bottles. And Dr. Seuss wrote about Lake Erie, smeary Lake Erie, and Unfortunately, Ohio's been treated very shabbily from an environmental point of view. Companies come here and run willy-nilly and shotgun over the landscape. That's one of the reasons one has to be concerned about the chemical derailment that just occurred and the explosion and a seemingly lack of uh, immediate strong federal response. Uh, People in Ohio feel like their their rivers and their landscapes are often abused by industrial chemical companies.
4: So I want to ask you about the this book you wrote, Silent Spring Revolution. You focused on a period of time and the leaders who got involved in this great environmental awakening. Can you explain a little bit about how that came about and, and sort of what this was?
2: We've had three environmental waves. It used to be the word conservation. So forgive me for saying environmental to an era when that word didn't exist but for listeners it's easier for me to use the word environmental the first was theodore roosevelt from 1901 to 1909 and tr really started putting the federal large S on things like creating our u.s forest service today if you look at a map and see all these national forests they were born During the Roosevelt TR administration, he started using executive power, the Antiquities Act of 1906. The White House had the power to go in and say, you're not mining the Grand Canyon for zinc, asbestos and copper. And if you don't want it as a national park, national parks have to be approved by Congress and Congress didn't want the Grand Canyon. TR then used executive power to, to save what became over a million acre national monument later became park when the politics were better. So that era, that first wave was quite exciting because for Roosevelt, by nature, T.R., was a wildlife conservationist. He went to Harvard in naturalist studies. He wrote a book as an undergraduate called The Summer Birds of the Adirondacks. Um, and so we had a president who really got conservation and elevated it. And didn't he have a lot of wild pets, too? He had 37 at one point in the White House. His favorite was a little dog named Skip that could climb trees. But he (laughs) also had parrots, snakes. Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia had gifted him a hyena, which Roosevelt then gave to the National Zoo. Wander, wandering around the White House was Josiah, a badger, that a little girl gave President Roosevelt in a box in Nebraska, and he fed it uh, with a baby bottle of milk and potatoes, and it grew up, and badgers are colonial animals, meaning they'll play with, they'll never turn on the, the family they're grown up with, but they'll attack anybody outside of... The perfect pet. Perfect, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> but, so it actually bit a congressman that attacked the badger in the White House, forced Theodore Roosevelt to bring the badger to his home in Long Island, Sagamore Hill. But it's buried in, with a cemetery stone right at Sagamore Hill, the badger Josiah. So Roosevelt was a Dr. Doolittle-like figure. T.R. kept his pockets filled with nuts, to feed the squirrels every day. He started working on a book about the birds of Washington, D.C. as president. Really remarkable, Roosevelt in environmentalism and, and outdoor world. And I wrote a book called The Wilderness Warrior about that.
4: I led you on a tangent, but I want you to get back to it because what you're talking about is incredibly interesting. So the second president who led this second environmental revolution was who?
2: Oh, It was Franklin D. Roosevelt Okay, and to understand TR and FDR I mean Theodore Roosevelt was from New York FDR was from New York Theodore Roosevelt went to Harvard FDR went to Harvard and they're related right They were fifth cousins right And but Theodore Roosevelt was assistant secretary of the navy FDR was assistant secretary of the navy Theodore Roosevelt was governor of New York FDR was governor of New York Theodore Roosevelt liked the big navy and loved conservation FDR loved both and Theodore Roosevelt had a niece Eleanor, who FDR married. right. So the, the, the two Roosevelt's really elevated environmental concerns to the very top of the national agenda. And in fact, when uh, there used to be inaugurations of presidents were in March and the famous New Deal kickoff of FDR in March of 33, his first New Deal program was the Civilian Conservation Corps, which paid unemployed workers a dollar a day to tree plant And uh, from 1933 to 1942, the CCC planted nearly 3 billion trees across America. Because we were just like in Ohio right now. It's an ecological disaster. The whole country, it wasn't just the stock market in the Depression. It was the Dust Bowl in the Great Plains. We had cut all of our hardwood trees, drained all the swamps.
4: Right. We had been farming wrong and that had killed the land.
2: Yeah, we've been farming wrong and we now we brought science into agriculture and forestry under FDR. And he was the progenitor of eight hundred state parks during the New Deal, and saved places like the Great Smokies, the Everglades, the Channel Islands of California, the Olympic Forest. One could go on and on with what FDR did. With others, it was a movement. Right. So the third wave that my new book is *Silent Spring Revolution* doesn't have a Roosevelt in it, and it didn't have a president that really loved the natural world like these two Roosevelt's. I mean, TR and FDR loved Henry David Thoreau and, you know, and were Auduboners and all this. And I had to begin my book in 1945 because the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, while it gave us victory over Japan, concerned a lot of public scientists and, and public moralists is this the doom of mankind? Right. And and people started getting information and data, scientific info on radiation, fallout sickness, cancer, leukemia. Yet we were willy-nilly testing nuclear weapons in the Nevada desert.
4: Right, no, I know. You
2: yeah, know, people were sick, sick, sick.
4: Well, and also we were building bombs in Los Alamos.
2: Yeah, New Mexico, the Southwest became a nuclear range. What happened is People I write about in my book, Rachel Carson, who was from Pennsylvania, she had done her advanced degree in zoology at Johns Hopkins, studied at Woods Hole in Massachusetts. Anybody listening, read Rachel Carson's trilogy on ocean life. They're remarkable.
4: So let's get now to what's happening in Ohio because there's a historical precedent, but there's also an opportunity here for the Biden administration to get serious about conservation again.
2: Well, the Biden administration's done a good job on climate change, but unfortunately, because I'm a admirer of President Biden, yeah, me the too. administration was slow in Ohio. In my book, I write about when Nixon was president eight days. And the Santa Barbara oil spill happened. And Nixon sent Walter Hickel, the Interior Secretary, to California. And right when he was arriving, he heard the White House saying it wasn't so bad in California. Yes, there's some birds that are got in oil, but it's going to be okay. Hickel got a hold of Nixon and said, do not minimize. It's a disaster. Do not minimize. And Nixon listened to that and avoided the blame for the spill. Biden administration didn't seem to want to make this into a big environmental flashpoint moment. Right,
4: but it is, and they're going to have no choice.
2: They have no choice. The president didn't come. Kamala Harris didn't come. Buttigieg only came after Trump, and the EPA uh, chief, who I like and admire, was seems slow out of the gate, and it's unfortunate. But when these disasters happen like this, you have to be on the ground uh, and have a bullhorn moment where you're saying, "I'm here." And Biden is so good at hugging and emphasizing with people. It would have been a natural scene for him. But I think he may have been planning the Ukraine trip to Kiev and kind of neglected Ohio, and they're paying a political cost for it in the public square right now.
4: Right. It's interesting because this is actually a real opportunity. What's happened, I mean, so one of the things that Trump did was he really ran on deregulation, right? He would say for every regulation, you know, we're going to take away five and nobody was able to thread the needle between deregulation and environmental catastrophes in such a clear way as we're seeing right now, right here.
2: Absolutely. And so they you You know, the the blame of the Trump administration for gutting EPA, for massive deregulation. I could go on and on. Um, But when a crisis of the environment happens the president has to respond in a 48 hour window while people are traumatized. And, you know, I remember when Barack Obama went to Flint later and then drank the water. It was a photo op moment, but it made people think maybe I should be able to drink our water. There's confusion going on in Ohio and Pennsylvania right now. Uh, You know, people saying, oh, that rash isn't isn't important. It's not so bad. And then cameras show dead fish and wildlife in a creek.
4: Right. People's pets are dying. We actually last week we had the incredible Erin Brockovich on this podcast and she said that she had been told that people's pets were dying, which struck me as
2: really bad. And Erin today, I'm in Ohio right now, she is at ground zero. She's there today. Yeah. Where do we go from here? What do we do? Obviously the railroads are going to pay up the gazoo for this.
4: And they fucking should. Excuse my French.
2: Absolutely. Full agreement and it'll be it'll be reigning class action suits. What does the Biden administration, I would have this public spokesperson. It's unusual for a White House to farm it out, but I would now let Sherrod Brown be the voice for for the White House. I would appoint him. He's loved in Ohio because he's very good at constituent politics. And if he goes, and puts his arm around the mayor and visits with people. He has credibility in Ohio as being a compassionate senator who cares about environmental justice issues. So I think he has to be elevated now. I'm afraid Biden, Harris and Buttigieg have lost their window to be the voice of this.
4: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, you say this as as we are both fans of Biden, but I think in my mind, there are a number of issues here. And the biggest one is you know, how do we protect the land in Ohio and the people who are there? I mean, do you have any sense on what the plan there is?
2: The first thing that has to happen is FEMA never should have said they're not going to be there. It's not in their ballywick. FEMA presence should have been everywhere. There's going to have to be a shakedown. Even Nixon would shake down polluters after Cuyahoga and make him pay. The White House and Chair Brown have to be the voice of anger that this has gone on for this many weeks, that people are telling, you know, the the idea was minimize it and let people get back in their houses. But any mother and father with children would be terrified within a hundred mile area here of whether you would want to be there, uh, putting your child's long-term risk of cancer, leukemia, and on and on at high risk. So it happened. It's not an immediate solution. We're obviously going to be a massive cleanup effort but everybody that lives in that community needs to be paid. In my book, I wrote about 1948, Denora, Pennsylvania, where the factories there, it was so polluted. One day in the summer, you know, it was hot and everybody in the community of Denora got sick. 20 people died of respiratory illness and it became where the word smog was born. There's even a little museum in Denora, Pennsylvania for the history of smog. But that triggered a look at Why can't we breathe in New York City through the smog? Why is LAF smog? And it led to December 1963 Clean Air Act which attacked stationary pollution of factories, we now are going to have to look at the railroad industry in a new light, uh, this utter recklessness by the Norfolk Southern folk.
4: I mean, it is a really interesting opportunity for legislators to remind all of us why they exist, right? Why the government needs to regulate things. The thing I wanted to actually ask you about was Nixon and the EPA. Because that seems very counterintuitive.
2: Well, I know. And that's what I mean. To your point, Molly, when you said these crises can get, you know, there's very, very likely uh, in Ohio right now, J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown can get on the same page. It's not that's not far fetched on this issue. But Nixon decided to work with Henry M. Jackson, Scoop Jackson, Democrat from Washington, who was just won the North Cascades National Park battle and was an environmentalist. Nixon worked with Jackson because Jackson did not criticize the Vietnam War where George McGovern, Eugene McCarthy, Gaylord Nelson, I can name you 20 Democrats that were denouncing Nixon's policy in Southeast Asia. Jackson didn't. Nixon worked with with Jackson. And in April 22nd, 1970, we had Earth Day, the first one. And Nixon saw that there were these teachings everywhere. And he ended up planting a tree on Earth Day and giving Interior Department employees the day off. He was worried that they were going to it was an anti-war trick Earth Day. But when it came and went and it seemed to be a positive Earth consciousness event, Nixon in the summer of 1970 worked with Democrat Scoop Jackson and Congressman John Dingell of Michigan. And they cobbled together EPA and it opened its doors in December 1970. And under its first director, administrator, William Ruckelshaus, it was awesome. The first EPA in 70, they did bust polluters. They became law enforcement going after companies. Ruckelhaus' EPA would have been all over this in Ohio right now in a very large way. Now, Nixon later thought Ruckelhaus' house was a loose cannon. <laughs> it's a longer story. But, you know, Nixon ended up banning DDT. He didn't want to. But the public demanded it, and his own EPA said he had to. So I think the Biden administration is going to get on the page here in the right ways, but they've lost a communication opportunity to show the empathy of the moment they needed. And so they're operating out of a deficit right now, and they've allowed their opponents, the GOP, to take some major punches at them. And, you know, it's indisputable they didn't move quickly enough there, at least in a symbolic way.
4: Right. And it is interesting. Nobody is going to accuse the Republican Party of being interested in environmental protection, right? (laughs) Or regulation, which are the two things that need to happen now. So it does feel really important that Democrats reclaim this.
2: I agree. And I think Sherrod Brown's the man. He's uh, running for re-election for the Senate in 2024. Ohio is becoming a a Republican state. He's got to hold on to his Senate seat. I know Sherrod Brown quite well. In fact, I know he wrote me a note. He's reading my book, Silent Spring Revolution.
4: Oh, yay.
2: He really cares about what's going on there. And so I think if he becomes the voice of the Democrats in Ohio, like Mike DeWine was doing for the Republicans, and I think that there can be a bipartisan consensus here on how to regulate these railroad companies that are bringing toxic chemicals through states at very rapid speeds. And they've done budget cuts and got rid of employees on these train companies that are carrying the toxic chemicals. And there's something always bad happens when you start downsizing jobs that, are, that involve lethal chemicals or industrial debris.
4: Yeah. Exactly. Thank you so much, Doug Brinkley. We're going to want to have you back.
2: Hey, anytime, Molly. I adore you and I love your podcast and keep it going.
4: Oh, I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at FastPoliticsPod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's FastPoliticsPod.com. Mike Tomaski is the editor of The New Republic. Welcome to Fast Politics, my favorite friend, Mike Tomaski. Hey, hey, hey. I want to talk to you about this unprecedented time in American history. I always think of you as someone who has like a long memory.
6: I'm old. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs>
4: Give me a precedent for what the fuck is happening here. Also, we can curse.
6: Yeah, well, it's fucking crazy. (laughs) There's not much precedent, really. You know, people point to the 1850s, I guess. But I think I've always said this is worse than the 1850s, because at least in the 1850s, they were kind of arguing about the same set of facts. They disagreed about slavery, but neither disputed the essential facts of the slave trade. There was just one side that was against it and one side thought it was fine. And so on and so on and so on. Now, we're not talking at all about the same set of facts, you right. know. I mean, you watch MSNBC and CNN one night and then uh, if we brought somebody here either from like another planet or from a, you know, a remotish civilization somewhere and asked them to watch MSNBC the first night, CNN the second night and Fox News the third night, they'd say, "Well, the first two nights were pretty similar and we're describing a certain world, but the third Night was just describing a completely different place, right? Right. Yeah. In that sense, we're much farther apart than they were in 1859 and 1860.
4: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because when we're talking about this idea of like, I mean, you were there, As was I in 1997 when Fox News started. It was the same year that MSNBC started. And the networks at that time, there were liberals on Fox. You know, there are liberals today on Fox, too. Uh,
6: Yeah, there was one liberal on Fox. (laughs) Let's not get carried away, Molly. There was Combs. Alan Combs, right, right. And his job was to be Sean Hannity's doormat. You know, we know that. Whereas on MSNBC, who was on? Laura Ingram was on MSNBC. Wow. Yeah, people forget that. MSNBC didn't become the MSNBC we know until well into the Bush years.
4: I always wonder, like, what the chicken or the egg here is. Like, did Fox News create this or did this create Fox News?
6: Yeah, I think this created Fox News. But let's define this. This was... The Rupert Murdoch Empire, first of all, that that started out very small, started out with the New York Post and uh, included New York Magazine, included the Village Voice for a little while. And he didn't try he didn't try to turn the Village Voice right wing. He just wanted to make money off the Village Voice and then he sold it. So this was uh, spearheaded by Murdoch and then also spearheaded by the end of the fairness doctrine in the Reagan years and the rise of right-wing radio, right-wing talk radio and Christian talk radio, which people, a lot of people thought wasn't gonna succeed at all and of course has. So those things were the first steps in the right-wing media and Fox was just seeing a market opportunity, Fox News, seeing a market opportunity and and inserting themselves into it.
4: Right, that is sort of the sense that I was getting is that Murdoch is in many ways just a mercenary and that while he may be ideologically right wing, he is chasing the dollar ultimately.
6: Yeah. And, you know, we've learned that we learned that never more emphatically than we learned it last week. Yes.
4: The Dominion suit.
6: Yeah. With that court filing. I mean, they, they openly said to each other, We can't lose market share to Newsmax. We can't lose market share to Newsmax. We know Trump is peddling a bunch of bullshit, but we can't lose viewers to Newsmax. Let's play this, you know, without exactly endorsing Let's let's play this uh, with kid gloves. But of course, they did go on to exactly endorse, uh, you know, a lot of the hosts completely endorsed the big lie, completely gave space to it. And it's not just if you read through that filing, it's not just Carlson and Ingram and, and Hannity. It's other people, notably Bartiromo. I mean, she comes off so poorly,
4: I think. I never understood what happened to her.
6: Yeah. yeah. How, how much money does she make a year? That's probably what happened to her.
4: Right. Okay. <laughs> right. They <I> got it. <laughs> <laughs> I can
6: give you sixteen million reasons why she did what she, or whatever the number is, you know.
4: Right. But it is like very clear when you look at the filing just how much this was a calculated decision on the part of these Fox anchors.
6: Yeah, and they played it along for weeks and weeks and weeks, and and you know, so they let people go on their air saying stuff that they knew to be false. Let's stop, take a step back. These are alleged journalists doing alleged journalism, and they let person after person after person go on their air and say false things and say crazy things, things they knew to be to have no basis, in fact, that wasn't about, you know, whether the New England Patriots inflated footballs or not, right. you know, it, right. it was about the most important, serious matters that, that we confront. Democracy. Yeah, democracy. It was the most important thing we confront as a country. And they let these lies go on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and they still go on. And And they now have been caught I think, you know, red handed, uh, but we'll see what happens. I mean, it's you know, it's it's hard to convict rich people of anything in this country.
4: And I'm not arguing with that. That's certainly true. But the other thing that I think is pretty interesting is that here we are where there's a percentage of the population that really needs to now hear that they were lying and they will not hear that on Fox News. Oh, no, of
6: course not. I still think back to that woman. Oh, when was this? Oh, it was it was about the Mueller report. Do you remember that they had that clip of that woman who only watched Fox News? And she said, well, I, I wasn't aware that the Mueller report said anything critical about Donald right. Trump. Where, where are you getting that? Where are you getting that? And it's, you know, I mean, I'd love to do a poll sometime of MSNBC and CNN viewers on the one hand versus Fox News on the other hand. And just ask them what they know about the world. You know, not only about you know the 2020 election, but like, you know, how old is the earth? you know, (laughs) because it's different universes.
4: Yeah, definitely. Well, and it's also, I think more importantly, there's no way to reconcile these two things. No.
6: And, you know, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. You know, we referred, uh, you referred to my advanced, uh, my years of experience. (laughs) (laughs) Not that old. (laughs) I mean, I remember when all this started and yeah, they, Created a kind of a different reality. And of course, they always seized on, you know, some out there left wing professor who said something kind of crazy. And then they made that seem to their viewers as if every liberal believed that and did that and thought that. Now that's practically all they do. You know, it it used to be part of the mix of what they did, but now it's just about all they do.
4: And it works. I mean, the thing that I'm struck by is that culture wars work well to distract from bad policies. Yeah. One of the things, Molly,
6: that frustrates me more than anything else in, in political life today is that when people are asked the question by pollsters, which party do you think is better for the economy? They always say Republicans, by anywhere from seven to 15 points. And whether it's a Democrat president or a Republican president, whether the economy happens to be good at the moment or bad at the moment, they always say Republicans. The facts are that if you look over the last several administrations at job creation, growth in median household income, gross domestic product uh, increase, stock market increase, everything, deficit reduction, handling of the deficit. The numbers with Democratic presidents are like far superior to the numbers with Republican presidents. Far, far superior. Nobody knows that that's the Democrats' fault, not the Republicans. They should be talking about it a lot more than they do. So that's number one. Number two, now here we have a Democratic president passing, you know, getting infrastructure jobs jobs on the ground, getting these infrastructure projects done, building chips and and, and uh, uh, microprocessing uh, plants in the United States again, moving those jobs away from China, starting to try to build things more in, in the United States, make the federal government buy things that are American. Twelve and a half million jobs in his first two years in office. Some of that's luck coincides with coming back after the pandemic, but still 12 and a half million jobs in two years. Nobody's ever come anywhere near that. And all of these good economic indicators, wages going up, inflation now abating, Republicans still People still reflexively think Republicans are are the party of the economy. It's a disaster. And it ties to the cultural stuff because they keep that culture stuff in front of people's faces so they don't notice the economic
4: stuff. Right, right, right. No, no. I mean, that is we're finding ourselves in this complete kind of world where what happens and what people think are two different things, right?
6: Yeah. There are just these perceptions that people have that are so baked in to their ideas about the parties and their ideas about, you know, what they hear uh, on the news or the quote unquote news. It's just really hard to dislodge that shit.
4: I mean, how would you theoretically do that if you wanted to, if you could?
6: Well, I mean, the first thing I would do is that I I would, like if I were the president or the emperor or something. Yeah, Yeah. yes, the
4: goddess, god, emperor, king of whatever it
6: is. (laughs) The first thing I would do is I would over and over and over again, I I would tout those statistics. uh, And I know a lot of people don't pay attention to statistics, but once they've heard them for the 10,000th time, I do think they begin to make a difference in people's heads. You know, people, under the last 16 years of Democratic presidencies, 34 million jobs have been created. Under the last 16 years of Republican presidencies, 1.8 million jobs have been created. Those are the numbers, people. Those are the numbers. They don't lie. These are the numbers. Democrats are better at the economy. Republicans are better at the economy for rich people. Democrats are better at the economy. So that's the first thing I'd do. Just have Democrats say that every single day in every venue that they possibly can. So that starts it. And then I guess the other thing I'd do is just, and I mean, this takes a little bit of work and a couple of more wins at the polls, but let's say by 2024, if Biden wins re-election and if the Democrats retake the House, and if they manage to hold the Senate, which you know most people don't think they're gonna do because the Senate map is pretty rough, but yeah. if, if they manage to do all those things, then the first thing that they have to do is get rid of the filibuster and just start passing stuff. You know, raise the minimum wage. Do something about overtime pay. Expand Medicare to include, you know, dental and glasses and go after prescription drug. Make insulin free. They can make insulin free. They've capped it at $35. That's nice, but make it free. It's actually not that expensive. It's a few billion dollars a year to make insulin free. Do these things. Show the people that you can actually deliver stuff for them but it requires getting rid of the filibuster because that way you don't need 60 votes and if if god willing they have 52 democratic senators or 53 if they have 53 then mansion and cinema are irrelevant right or even at 52 because they just need 50 plus the vice president breaking the tie then they can do these things but you know they just uh, they They really blew an opportunity by not doing anything about that filibuster.
4: Can we talk about George Santos? (laughs)
6: Yeah.
4: I mean, is there any precedent for George Santos? There must be, right, a serial fabulist.
6: The precedent for George Santos is George Santos, as he just just,
4: (laughs) (laughs) Or George Santos is president.
6: Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, as he just told Pierre Morgan, he said, well, why, why, why should I have told the truth in 2022? I lied in 2020 and I... Got away with it then. Yeah, I don't know. You know, so the question is, and now we've got three. So there's that guy, Andy Ogles, or whatever his name is.
4: Yeah, he also, right, Andy Ogles is also a serial fabulist.
6: Yeah, and then there's the woman, Luna, who's not exactly a serial fabulist, but but lied about her heritage. So now we've got three. In journalism school, you know, that constitutes a pattern.
4: (laughs) I was uh, told there would not be math.
6: <laughs> well, it's just three, Molly. Okay, right. well. You have to ask, why are there these people and why are they all Republicans? Now, I are there democratic liars in the world and, and resume patterns? Of course. No, uh, yeah, no, no you're not. right. They're not. No of, of course, <laughs> no, of course
4: not. Of course not. Of course there and are Politicians yeah, never. Right.
6: Of course there are democratic re- resume patterns. But why is it that the only cases we have before us are republicans well there are probably some valid theories about that they lie about all kinds of shit so when you start lying about the world eventually you're going to start lying about yourself i also think that it's interesting that two of these three santos and luna are non-white and republicans are so desperate To show that they're diverse and to show that they have people of color who are conservative, that they don't give a crap about what their credentials are.
4: It is interesting to me, like you lay down with Trump. Trump is your guy. Right. You know, he is a serial fabulist. I mean, you know, maybe he's not a serial fabulous, but basically, you know, I would not go to that person for any trustworthy source of information, nor would many of his advisors, friends or relatives. So clearly, like the message here is this is OK. I mean, I wonder about like the people in the Republican Party. I often think about this, like the people like a kind of I mean, I don't want to say Newt Gingrich. I'm thinking more along the lines of like someone smart, like the guy who uh, wanted to like drown the government in a bathtub.
6: Yeah. Norquist.
4: Norquist. Right. I'm thinking about Norquist. Like Norquist went along with Trump because it was working. Right. Yeah. But like, I wonder if these people ever made the larger calculus that like while we're doing this, we're completely screwing ourselves you know, in a million different ways.
6: Yeah, they had to know. I mean, I know Grover a bit. He is a smart guy. (laughs) He actually did go to Harvard, by the way.
4: No, he's very smart. That's why I brought him up, yeah, because right. he's like very smart, ideologically very conservative. And and people like that, you have to have made a sort of Faustian deal that you were just going to do it. Yeah,
6: I think they all just thought, you know, this, we can get away with this and just hope the roof doesn't cave in on us. And meanwhile, we're getting our judges and, and you know, right. he's doing, you know, he's doing whatever else he's doing with respect to, I don't know, his moves in Israel. They like that and cutting taxes. They love that, obviously. Right. So, yeah, they didn't anticipate a January 6th. They didn't anticipate an attempted coup. They didn't anticipate that he'd actually want people to kill his vice president. And yet he's the front runner for the nominee.
4: Yeah, I think he's the front runner for the nominee. Or, And if he's not the nominee, I think we're going to have mini Trump. Yeah. Me Ron. Ron. Right. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you will come back. Of course. Anytime. Thanks.
2: And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jong fast.
4: Jesse Cannon.
2: Remember
6: how much Trump respected that pledge about not running in another party
2: when they tried to get him to do it in 2016 and he basically just embarrassed them on stage? That was fun.
4: So Rana Romney, <laughs> RNC chair yet again, has decided that she's gonna make all the candidates. Sign a pledge saying they're going to support whoever wins the nomination. But let me tell you, there's only one candidate she really cares about getting to (laughs) sign it. And that candidate ain't going to sign it. You know, it reminds me of the old George Bush. Fool me once, shame on you. (laughs) Fool me twice, shame on you don't get to fool again. (laughs) And that is a verbatim quote from George W. Bush. Don't get to fool me again, except with Rana. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.